I'm Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Briefing. It's the latest news headlines to your headphones this Tuesday, 6 October. Today on The Briefing, Tom and Jan take a deep dive on Sweden and whether or not their controversial coronavirus plan has actually worked. I see a mask here and there, but, uh, you know, I might have seen 20 in the whole this whole year. But before that, Enika Smethurst and I are here together and we are going to get really, really geeky about the federal budget and the other big news of the day. It's one of the most important federal budgets in history. The Treasurer is putting his final touches to the federal budget, which has been billed as the most important since World War II. Most Australians will not have had a federal budget like this in their lifetimes. It's better late than never, Annika, when it comes to tonight's federal budget. That's right, Jam. Usually handed down in May, this year's budget has been delayed by many months, but tonight's the night. Although, thanks to some quiet chats with press gallery journalists, we already know a lot of the detail. There'll be help for first home buyers, salary help for apprentices, and wage subsidies for 700,000 young Aussies. But one of the biggest talking points today is plans to bring forward tax cuts, which were originally scheduled to start in July 2022. And not just bring them forward, those tax cuts will also be backdated to July this year. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that since June, your employer has probably been deducting more tax from your pay than required, likely giving you more money when you do next year's tax return. So overall, if these changes pass the parliament, and that seems likely, they'll increase the country's take-home pay by more than $12 billion. But who cares about that? What's in it for you? Low and middle income workers will take home an extra $1,080 each year. There'll be $2,656 for people earning upwards of 90 grand and a bit more again for those earning $120,000 or more. There's a pattern there, Annika. The richer you are, the more you earn, the more you're going to take home. So that's more money for you and the government want you to spend it. But this is where the problem is. The latest ABS data showed us that households were actually saving almost a fifth of their income in June. That's up from 6% in March and even more from the year before. So getting people to actually go out and get their money into the economy, which the government wants you to do, is really difficult. So those of us who've got money in this tricky, tight economy are saving it because we're worried about the future. So shouldn't we be trying to get money into the hands of people who don't have it, who are going to spend it on the basics. That is a real problem. And that's why welfare groups and a bunch of other sort of supporters of this really aren't exactly a fan of this plan. They get that getting money into the economy is a good idea, but getting people to spend it is difficult. Now, last week, Scott Morrison was asked about this and he did say that he doesn't want to tell Australians what to do with their money, which is a good policy in theory, but it's not going to help stimulate the economy in the way that is perhaps needed. The conspiracy theorists are in overdrive with the news over the weekend that US President Donald Trump has been diagnosed with coronavirus and been admitted to hospital. I am here for my president and I want him to get well and I wish him well and just here for the support and show him that we're out here, we care for him and we love him. That's just one of the fans who's been gathering outside the hospital in support of the US president. While there's also been claims he's both faking his diagnosis and also that he's actually a lot sicker than his doctors are letting on. So uh, it's been a very interesting journey. I learned a lot about COVID. I learned it by really going to school. This is the real school. This isn't the let's read the book school. And I get it and I understand it. 
He gets it and he understands it, Annika. It's good that's finally happened. <laughs> there are now more than 15 other cases linked to Trump after leaving the hospital over the weekend for a drive-by in his motorcade with a bunch of staff in the car. This was so he could show fans that he was doing all right. And that does seem to be the case. It's looking like he could actually be discharged sometime later today. As a former staffer, I'm sure you wouldn't have been too keen on getting in a car with one of your former bosses, Jamila. But look, nope, thank he's, you. <laughs> he's obviously been tweeting during all of this, of course. Last night, there was something like 18 tweets in the space of an hour encouraging Americans to vote and showing off some of his other policies too. 18 tweets in an hour, that definitely sounds like him. It's been a wild weekend of news, hasn't it, Annika? Incredible. And I think, look, I didn't know if this was going to help him or hinder him, but I felt like it was a bit of a turning point when he did that stunt in the car yesterday. I don't know how many people are going to be too impressed with that. Cardinal George Pell is back across the news today with his lawyers wanting a global investigation into what they say are baseless new claims. Yeah, stories were published by an Italian newspaper claiming a rival of Powell, Cardinal Giovanni Bucci, used Vatican money to pay an Australian witness who gave evidence against Powell in a sexual assault case. Bucci and Powell, both high-ranking members of the Vatican, have been involved in an internal feud since at least 2016. And nonetheless, lawyer Robert Ricker QC says it's the responsibility of both Australian and international authorities to investigate this. And this, of course, all comes just a couple of months after Pell's sex offence convictions were overturned by the High Court. Now, Tom and Jan are jumping in to look at just how successful Sweden's controversial coronavirus plan has actually been. Hello, it's Jan and Tom here, and it is time to talk about Sweden. Yeah, it gets thrown around in basically any argument about how to handle the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, I hear it all the time. While countries like China, Italy, France, Spain, while they were all going into a hardcore lockdown, Sweden went out alone with a very different approach. I guess you'd say a much more liberal approach. Yeah, people were still out in cafes, children were going to school, there were very few face masks. Uh, They said they were playing the long game. Yeah, and initially it seemed to be a bit of a disaster um, compared to their neighbours, Norway, Finland and Denmark. Uh, Their infection rate was high, their death rate was very high and their economy went backwards a similar amount. Yeah, more than ours here in Australia, Mm -hmm. actually. But six months down the track, we're not seeing the second wave in Sweden that we're seeing in other European countries. So Is the narrative changing? Is that long game starting to pay off? Yeah, that is the question that we are looking at in today's briefing. Let's start by getting the personal experience of an Australian who is living in Sweden. Yeah, Lily's a journalist in her late 20s, moved to Sweden five years ago, got a Swedish partner, two children. Lily, can you start by telling us what it's like living in Sweden now? Basically, other than posters telling people to keep a distance, things aren't really, I don't experience them to be very different. Um, Everything is still open, pubs, clubs, um, supermarkets. There's there's lines on the ground at the checkout, but people are still kind of on top of each other. There's People are all over the streets and the shops. Uh, I see a mask here and there, but, uh, you know, I might have seen 20 in the whole, this whole year. Um, When we were in isolation, the few times we had to go out, it was pretty alarming, you know, feeling pretty frightened of just the huge crowds, people on top of each other. But um, 
but I think it's also been, you know, it's kind of people aren't scared. You don't get a, a vibe of fear at all out and about. Okay, so that's what it's like now. What's it been like uh, throughout the the last six months? Clearly, Sweden's touted by everyone as the ultra liberal approach, and you've been keeping an eye on what's going on here. How different was it experiencing the Swedish response compared to what you know was happening here? Yeah, kind of as fast as I can go through it, sort of when we sort of realized that it was becoming pretty big and there were cases in Sweden and we had community spread, which was maybe, yeah, it was like mid-March, um, we decided I was pregnant and we have a two, oh, you know, at the time one and a half year old. So we decided that we just wanted to uh, go live with Felix's grandma in the country side and just be as isolated as possible because it didn't seem like, um, you know, the powers that be were going to make decisions to shut things down. Um, at that time, some people were sort of being really careful, but most people were just kind of ignoring it. Uh, and then when the cases got really bad in our aged care homes, you know, we got up to 8,000 deaths pretty fast. People did start sort of, it was mostly just people staying home of their own accord. You know, the official line was stay home if you've got any symptoms. Um, we sort of played a little bit with stay home if your family members have symptoms, but they took that away pretty fast when they realised that uh, with such high community spread, we were just going to have everybody staying home. Mm. So it got to the point where even if your partner has you know, uh, a confirmed case of coronavirus, you can still go out and, you know, go to your aged care job or go to your obstetrics job or whatever, which I found pretty alarming. Um, and that's still the case. They're sort of, you know, yeah, basically just the onus is on the individual. How do you rate mm. the Swedish response compared to Australia's response? Oh, I mean, they have different goals. I guess Australia knows that, um wiping it out as possible because they're an island um, and, you know, with extremely strict travel restrictions and, um, you know, visiting restrictions in, in aged care facilities and stuff, they're really going for the wipe it out approach, whereas Sweden sharing borders with countries, it's just much, you know, and in Europe where it was sort of the epicentre of the disease pretty early, they were never going to be able to wipe it out or at least that was their attitude. And so it was more, um, you know, the approach was flatten the curve so that all the people who are sick and need um, assistance are going to be able to get it when the time comes. That was Lily. And it sounds like it's been a bit of a nail-biter for her, but she's sort of starting to come around to the Swedish approach. Yeah. Let's go to a Swedish health economist just to explain the strategy. Peter Lindgren, thanks for joining us. Can you explain the Swedish strategy for us? Sure. I think the way that the Swedish strategy is different from, from, for instance, Norway and, uh, and Denmark is that the approach has been one of more of voluntary measures rather than strict lockdown uh, on society. So there has been uh, recommendations about social distancing, for instance, uh, but there has been no uh, firm sort of legal measures in place to enforce that. Mm-hmm. The, the, the only strict legal measures that's been in place is, is basically a limit on, on crowd sizes to be, they need to be below 50 people in one place. But otherwise, it, it has been an approach that's been based on recommendations from the authorities, basically trust in, in, in the citizens that they would uh, adhere to this this strategy. Why so, do you think Sweden so, took this course of action when uh, its neighbours and many other countries in Europe and indeed around the world didn't? I think I think that there there are a couple of of uh, different reasons for that. One one is strictly legal. 
it's very difficult to uh, limit the, the freedom of movement for people uh, in, in Sweden, either within or, or going outside the country. That, that's constitutionally not possible to make a law like that outside wartime. But Sweden also has a culture of uh, high trust in authorities and the recommendations of the authorities. This hasn't become a polarized issue sort of on political grounds, uh, like in, say, the US, where you have masks or no, no mask is more of a political identity than, than anything else. That's, that's not the situation in Sweden. So there weren't laws to enforce the social distancing requirements and restrictions on gatherings. Um, but what was the reality? What did the the response of the Swedish people look like and how different was it in reality from its neighbours? I think that that the uh, people adhered quite quite well to, to these recommendations. You can, for, for instance, data from telecoms companies on people's movements, for instance, during uh, spring breaks and so on, that, that showed that people were essentially uh, staying in place and didn't move across the country as, as uh, in line with what requested uh, to do. So to a great degree, I, I think that what was happening on the ground in Sweden wasn't very much different from other countries. Mm. But the death rate was so much higher and the case numbers were higher. So surely there must have been some significant differences compared to Norway and Finland. I think that... One possible reason is is that there was likely a quite big influx in uh, undetected cases early on in the pandemic due to uh, essential school holidays just during the, those weeks. So uh, pe- people, in particular Stockholm, was, was very hard hit uh, by the epidemic. Uh, and part of that could be that there was a school holiday and, and quite a number of people went down to the Alps to, to celebrate that and, and may have brought, brought uh, the virus back yeah. uh, mm-hmm. undetected, uh, which is one possible exp- explanation for that. That was Peter Lindgren, Managing Director of the Swedish Institute. Institute for Health Economics there. We're going to come back to him in a sec, but Tom, can you give us a bit of a state of play of the pandemic in Europe? Because I feel like there's a lot we have to know about different countries. Like to do any comparison that's meaningful in this space, you need to get across a lot of detail. So I've been looking at the WHO figures. Broadly speaking, Europe is seeing a big second wave, but with a dramatically lower death rate than the first wave. Mm -hmm. Some countries, including France and Spain, are having a very bad second wave. Their daily case numbers are more than double what they were in the first wave. Sweden is having a much smaller second wave. Daily case numbers have now come back up to about a third of what they were during the first wave, and their death rate is very low. And do we know about Sweden's closest neighbours? Like they're, they're the more comparable countries, so where are they at? Yeah, so on a very simplified reading of the WHO data... Denmark's doing worse. Their daily case numbers per capita are roughly double Sweden's and their second wave is bigger than their first. Right. Finland and particularly Norway seem to be doing a little better than Sweden in their daily case numbers, which are lower than Sweden per capita. But Sweden's second wave is smaller compared to its first wave. So Finland and Norway are doing slightly better now, but the size of their second waves might point towards a problem in the future. All right, well, let's go to the Swedish health economist's assessment of how well the Swedish approach has worked so far. So here is Peter Lindgren again. What we do know is is that the number of deaths were were high pretty on. 
Part of that is driven by a, a large number of deaths in elderly care facilities. And elderly care facilities, like nurse, nursing homes in Sweden, are it, it is essentially people who are you know, the, the average time remaining of life when you're in one of these uh, facilities is normally maybe a couple of years. But but right. that's not a consequence of the coronavirus strategy. That's something that has been made apparent by the coronavirus situation. But but the issue was likely there before. Okay, so on the case numbers, do you think the strategy is working if you put the issue of the deaths in uh, aged care to one side, looking at the way the first wave hit Sweden and now where things are at with the second wave affecting a lot of European countries but seemingly not Sweden, how do you think the strategy is looking at this point in time? The overall objective of the Swedish strategy was always uh, flatten the curve uh, so that the healthcare system can cope. It worked. We had a couple of military hospitals that were set up, but they never had to admit any patients. So the system, the healthcare system uh, held. So from that perspective, it, it was a successful strategy. Uh, at the moment, uh, case numbers are, are, are low. We have seen a slight increase in the last week or so. If that is the beginning or something, or maybe just people have been a little bit more relaxed now when it has been looking good, remains to be seen. So so we're not over the bridge. Mm. Uh, we shouldn't start celebrating that. But at the moment, it looks better than it does in most European countries. The case for not having a severe lockdown is to not you know, place a massive burden on the economy. Sweden's economic hit is roughly comparable to its neighbours and um, was actually worse than our own here in Australia, even though in, in some parts of the country we took a tougher position on, on lockdown measures. So on, on that front, do you think it's been successful? Because it, it doesn't look like you got a much higher death rate. You're not having a second wave of Italy and Germany, but you're roughly comparable in your your second wave to your neighbours, uh, and your economy's about the same. The point of the strategy was, was never about the economy. Uh, mm. The point of the strategy was was res- resilience, to be able to keep uh, having social distancing in place over time, so so we wouldn't get spikes later on. Uh, but there wasn't wasn't a case for the economy, and and quite frankly, it would be stupid to try to make a case for the economy in that way because we have a tremendously export dependent uh, yeah. economy anyway. We sell cars, cars and, and lumber products, and we have an export oriented economy. It doesn't really matter what we do. Uh, so, so I don't, don't think anyone had had the goal to to save the economy by this. That that was never the express the, the policy really. So that was Peter Lindgren, um, our resident Swedish expert, to talk about Sweden and and no simple answers there, Jan. No, well that's the thing. It's you you have to know a lot about what's going on, not just in Sweden, but in other countries around the world over time. And actually, I think that the answers to all of these questions about which strategy has worked best and why, it's going to take a while for us to really understand that. You know, Sweden's playing a long game. We've only really been eight months into the pandemic. Who knows what will happen in in six months or a year's time, right? And the success will really be a function of the timing of a vaccine as well. Yeah, well, that's that's the big thing that enters into the state of play for sure. Thank you, Tom and Jan. Tomorrow, we're going to take a deep dive into the federal budget. We'll break it all down for you along with former Treasurer Wayne Swan. Subscribe to us at Podcast One Australia or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, the best way to support us is to tell your friends all about it. Stay in touch at The Briefing Podcast on Instagram for the latest headlines. And while you're there, 
why not tag us in a picture to show us where you're listening from? A Podcast One production.